Hello and welcome to Dog Save the People, a podcast about how dogs make our lives better. My name is John Bartlett and I'm your host. Hi, John and listeners. I'm Nina May, founder of Wonder Dog Magazine and a regular contributor. I'm so thrilled to be back and contributing to the show, this time to share a conversation with an artist from my neck of the woods in England. Antonia Bruce is an artist who initially worked as an independent filmmaker in the early 80s and was a founding member of London Video Arts with sponsorship from the British Film Institute. She would go on to work across many other mediums over the years. Most recently, she has focused more on drawing. When Antonia faced a health scare with bone marrow edema in both feet, she had two foxhounds, Hal and Isla, come into her life and join her on the recovery road. And while getting to know this new breed, she started to draw hounds as well, providing a way for her to see and truly understand them in a deeper way. Hi, Antonia. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us on Dog Save the People today. Thank you. I'm so excited to speak with you to learn more about your journey. To start off, how was your relationship with dogs growing up? I did always love dogs. I wasn't allowed them as a child myself. I always knew that was going to have to be in my life at some point. My husband had dogs in the family, but not me. When you say you weren't allowed them as a child, for me, it was the exact opposite. My family always had dogs especially Dachshunds. We were a Dachshund family. It wasn't actually until I was an adult and I got my first rescue dog when I was in my early 30s that I realized the responsibility and also the joy of walking your dog every day. So I'm wondering, as an adult, you had a family and you were balancing your motherly duties with your work as an artist. How did a dog eventually come into your life? I did drawing school and I said, look, it's going to be a very difficult year. I'm going to be away three days a week then we can think about maybe having a dog. I'll settle down when I come back from this course and then we can think about a dog. And my youngest daughter was 10 at the time and all she had written to me for the last months beforehand was, I want a dog. Huge piles of letters on my pillow. And on her 11th birthday, my sister's black lab had puppies. And that was an amazing moment. These 11 puppies were born on Harriet's 11th birthday. There was no way I could go back on that promise. Tio became a very good family dog. It was the right thing for us. We felt complete as a family. That's so beautiful. And I can imagine, especially since the little dog came from your sister, that must have been so special for you and for your Harriet. To fast forward to after the kids left the house, you later ran into a health scare. Would you mind sharing about that? I had a scan in January of 2017. I had fluid in my bones right up to my knees and both feet. They just told me I had to get off my feet, not walk. I'm sure that was incredibly tough. I wouldn't even know how to restructure my whole life. I just knew it was very important to keep strong. So all of that year I swam or I did what I could to keep strong and to keep the sense of the brain-foot coordination. And I got an electric bike and I was able to manage a bit of cycling and things like that to get as near as possible to an ordinary existence. But I actually wasn't allowed to walk more than a few yards. And I actually really couldn't walk more than perhaps 50 yards. And so it was a difficult time practically to manage life. And I did all I could to recover and to fix it. But I'm an outdoorsy sort of girl and I enjoy the countryside and I was brought up in the countryside. 
I miss sort of the feel of mud under my feet and the grounding that comes with that. I lived in the countryside for many years and I just loved muddy feet and losing my wellies in mud puddles. It must have been so frustrating for you. So after a while, you decided to visit a friend's farm. How did that go? When I went to see my friend, I knew her Welsh hound had 12 puppies. I said, look, coming to see you, but I'm definitely not going to take a puppy. As I got out of the car and I felt that mud underneath my feet and heard the sound of the peacocks and all her running ducks and the goats and the sheep and all of the things that I missed so much, I thought this is actually what I need to recover. And this wasn't really to do with looking at puppies and falling in love with little furry things. It was a much deeper call, really, more to do with that engagement of something strong, something that needed me. And I thought that possibly if I got some backup help, I could persuade the doctors that this was a good idea to learn to walk again with the limitations of puppy walking. I also was worried about not being very able to possibly entertain a single puppy. So I thought maybe it would be good to have two. So I rang my husband and he said, I've been thinking about that. Let's do two. Anyway, we took these two puppies and that was the beginning of something quite different in our lives. Tia was a lovely family dog, but Hal and Isla became our dogs in a very different level of dog care. So you didn't just adopt one puppy, which everybody knows is a huge job. You adopted two puppies and then not just any dog. You went for a truly insanely hardworking, intelligent, intensive breed, didn't you? I did. I suppose they were 12 weeks then. And I think our friends thought we were absolutely crazy and we are very social people. We became less social. We were much more everything around dogs and only seeing people who could manage that. I suppose we felt that it was worth the sacrifices that dogs bring. They're a responsibility, a huge responsibility. And we enjoyed that enough to do it again. <laughs> and we immediately conscripted the help from Borrow My Doggy. It's a company here that matches up students who have enjoyed family life with dogs but can't have dogs in their flats in the university. Attracted some great people and we made some fantastic relationships with young students coming through. We live in Oxford and two of them who were the very first that answered the ad and we first people we walked with are still with us five years later. Did you feel that Isla and Hal were exactly what you needed? Yes, we really did. It was very emotional getting them because you could sense that this was going to be the start of something new. And we really didn't know how we were going to manage this, but it was an important thing. They did really help us shift into something new. And part of that was that essential bonding time when they were kitchen bound and before they were really allowed to go out much. You're just all in it together in a sort of earthy kind of way. Those kinds of moments are a very good way of transitioning from a trauma. I've had a few rough patches as well and my dog Goldie has always helped me through it and just sitting with her on the floor is just so nice and grounding and it just really takes your focus away from your own pains and needs and you just look at this little animal that you invited to live in your home and you wonder how did that happen. So when you were getting back on your feet how did it go with having the puppies walk with you? We just did walk them a lot so there was a couple of hours in the morning, a couple of hours in the afternoon. And I got three hours at lunchtime to sort the rest of life out. <laughs> I did exactly what I thought I'd do, which was to learn to increase my walking time as the dogs needed it. And of course, that happened quite quickly. So did your doctors agree with you then? 
did they think this was a good idea? They pretty much signed me off and said, it's not really working, the kind of no walking thing. You can try. So just went for it. And they were actually so happy when I next saw them about six months later. They thought that was actually a brave thing to do and something that they might recommend to some of their other patients. I love that your doctors were also so supportive and even recommended to others in similar situations. So when you were raising and training the dogs, how did that process evolve? Initially, it was quite complicated, the worry of it. They were very strong on the lead and you had to have a bit of walking on the lead for about the first half an hour and then they needed an hour or half an hour off lead. There are times when perhaps I felt it went a bit too fast and was a bit challenging. But then I did get a tracker for both of them. And the tracker was really helpful because I could see how they were looping on their hunting. So one of them would actually then swim and would swim across a river. And then I would track him and Isla and I would wait one side. So Hal would swim and would cross after a smell, a scent of a hare or a fox. Could watch him and eventually, 15 minutes later, sure enough, there he was. He just swam back to us. I wouldn't have ever had them as lead dogs only. Just wouldn't have been the right thing for that breed. You train them because their instinct is so strong. I felt it was really important to learn what to expect from them. And I wasn't going to get that from any normal dog behavioral person because they were foxhounds. So you did the clever thing and you went to a huntsman who has foxhounds. And we should probably add at this point that fox hunting has been outlawed in the UK in 2006. But there are still hunts who just have dogs. They no longer go on fox hunts, but they keep foxhounds, they walk them, they train them without the now illegal bit of the actual fox hunting. So, of course, these groups of huntsmen are a tight-knit community. So what was their initial reaction when you turned up and asked to learn more about this breed? The hunt was a little bit disapproving of me initially, but they did respect the fact that I wanted to find out about them. And I spent hours and hours actually talking to the huntsmen and drawing the dogs in the kennels up there. One of the stories I loved was talking to the huntsmen about the collective call that dogs in the pack, one would start to sing and the others would all join in. And it was absolutely extraordinary to be in that room with these dogs that would start this collective call. And it was for no reason at all. And a huntsman, even after years and years, he couldn't really give me an answer as to why they did it, except that it was a sort of tonal being of togetherness. So not only did you get to learn more about your own dogs, but you mentioned that you started drawing these dogs in the kennels. How did that go? The first time the huntsman led me into the kennel where they kept dogs, it was quite a thing to sit down and have so many of them. <laughs> they would eat my pencils and my sketchbooks, and I had to wait for ages for them to calm down. After about 15 minutes, they would actually think I was really boring. And so they would then go to sleep and I could then start to draw them. And that was good. Spent hours drawing the dogs, but it was fascinating watching them. Fascinating. I didn't actually draw my own dogs as much as I drew those dogs because the dogs at home found it a little bit nerve wracking when I was looking so intensely at them. Whereas the kennel dogs thought quite enjoyed it, I think, because there were so many of them. No, draw me, please. <laughs> <laughs> Now, unfortunately, we are on a podcast, so we can't see your work, although we will include some pictures of your drawings in our episode show notes link. 
But can you describe your artistic technique and style a bit more for our listeners? Is it just line work or do you then go home and fill it in a bit more? I would never work beyond the moment that I draw in. I work with Japanese ink and Japanese brushes and I work very fast because of the limitations of the ink, because I'd have been ink everywhere. I did translate some of the drawings I did into another medium. So I worked in pencil then. And the pencil drawings I actually did take into etchings. So I started to learn printmaking as a new skill. So that was an interesting thing. I like the fact that etching has that history to it. And also from that time when animals were a more common sight around horses and dogs, and they were more integrated into our lives. And those etchings and drawings from that period, I wanted to recall that in my interpretation of what I was looking at. That's so fascinating that you're using etchings and drawings. I would have never thought that etchings especially would be suitable for drawing great movement. What do you think is a lesson you've learned from drawing these dogs? I think it's that sense of movement. Dogs are never going to be still. If you're drawing 30 dogs in a room, you're drawing constant movement. There's a moment when you work with moving things where you give up on trying to observe, but you become entangled in the energy of the space. And in that way, there's a transferal of energy between the dogs and yourself. So not only did the dogs help you in walking again, they even led to this spark of creative inspiration as well. I imagine that you see the relationship between animals and art to be an important one for you. Yeah, I think most of the people who listen to this podcast would agree that if you turn up to something like this sort of chat, <laughs> you probably have a curiosity around your relationship with animals in your lives. I think it was an exploration of that and bringing that back into sharper focus. That self-confidence that has come from being out there again, I've been able to build on that. Antonia, before we say goodbye, please tell us where we can find your work online. Antonia.bruce is my Instagram. Don't have a website, but I am on Instagram. Fantastic. Thank you. And again, listeners can see some images in the episode show notes link in the description. Antonia, I had a great time chatting to you. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. It was moving to hear from Antonia about how she was in this vulnerable and scary position with her feet, not being able to get out and spend time in nature like she was used to. But to then bring in Hal and Isla into her home and have them be such a crucial part in getting Antonia back on her feet is touching. While the puppies were finding their feet for the first time, Antonia was learning to walk again. And then for Antonia to also connect with these foxhounds in a more layered way through her drawing shows about how seriously she takes the bond they share and how much she values their unique characteristics. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dog Save the People, a podcast about how dogs make our lives better. This show is made by As It Should Be, a production company and content studio. It is made with the support of Scott Benaglio, executive producer, and Jack Summer, our producer and editor. Special thanks to Daniel Lampert, our neighbor and composer, for creating the music for the show. You can follow Dog Save the People on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow our show on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. To sign up for our monthly email newsletter, 
you can go to dogsavethepeople.com. On the website, you'll also find show merch in our online gift shop. This includes shirts from the Tiny Tim Rescue Fund, my foundation, where profits go to supporting independent rescues and shelters. If you have any questions or submissions, please drop a note to the email address bark at dogsavethepeople.com. New episodes come out every Tuesday, so see you next week for another episode from Dog Save the People. Enjoy a walk with your dog outside and make it a great day for both of you. Thank you.